Welcome to the Peter Lang Podcast. Here's your host and mentor, best-selling author, internationally acclaimed speaker, and community leader, Dr. Peter Lang. Well, welcome to the Peter Lang Podcast. And today we will talk about the North Shore Hospice. And our guests today, I'm going to have them introduce themselves to you because uh, I don't want to mess up uh, anything about these three distinguished uh, people. Uh, Jane, let's start with you exactly who you are, what you do, and uh, so on and so forth, and then we'll okay. come to the questions. So, Jane. Okay, hello. My name is Jane Jordan, and I'm the program coordinator for the Everyday Counts program, which is the support arm of the North Shore Palliative Care Program, which also encompasses North Shore Hospice. And I live and work on the North Shore, and uh, I see many beautiful people coming through our facility for many different reasons, and it's an honor to be here. Thank you so much for being here today. Ingrid. Hi, I'm Dr. Ingrid McPhee. I'm the medical director for the North Shore Palliative Care Program. And we provide palliative care services in the community, in North Shore Hospice, as well as at Lionsgate Hospital. Okay. How many years have you been doing that? I've been more geared towards palliative care for the last eight years. Mm. Thank you for being here. Akila. Anise. Yeah, hi. I'm Anise Laka. I'm a palliative care physician at Lionsgate Hospital. I'm also the medical director for the Everyday Counts, a day program for palliative care patients and their families. It's a free program on the North Shore. Well, thank you, ladies, for being here. I appreciate it very much. I'm sure what you have to share is far more important than my questions, but I'll I'll do I'll do my best. I'll do my best. Well, first of all, what's the difference between hospice and palliative care? And let's start with uh, Ingrid. So palliative care is a spectrum of care that is more of an approach than a designation. So we always talk about palliative patients and, and that somebody is palliative, but it really is more of a holistic approach to care that is appropriate for pretty much any patient, but we geared towards people who have a life-limiting illness. And so our care is a little more holistic in nature in that we take into account people's goals, specifically uh, about quality of life. And we really involve not just the patient, but their loved ones as well, be that family or friends or coworkers. And so it is a bit of a different approach in that some of our treatments are not aimed at life prolongation, but more at symptom management. But what's really interesting is we have some very good studies that show early involvement of palliative care actually does increase life expectancy. And mm -hmm. so while we are dealing mainly, mainly with people who have, let's say, a advanced cancer or a progressive neurological disease like Parkinson's or ALS, there really is it's evidence to show that focusing on their quality of life instead of treatment of at all costs can actually increase their lifespan and give them a way better quality of life while we're doing that. And so we are a specialty that doesn't operate in isolation. We often provide parallel care. So we work alongside patients, oncologists or cardiologists or neurologists, and we help with their symptom management needs. We help with conversations around what treatments are appropriate or may not provide medical benefit. And 
we also have a very defined role when patients are at their end of life. And so when patients are at their end of life, we do call that hospice care. And that hospice care can be provided in a number of different venues. So it specifically can be at our center called the North Shore Hospice. And there are dedicated hospices throughout the province and in Canada. We can provide hospice style care in patients' homes. So we can provide nursing, we can provide medical support, we can provide home support and equipment to ensure people can have a death in home if that is of their choosing. We can also provide hospice style care within the hospital. Now, for most of us, that isn't where we wanna die. And so less than 25% of patients want to die in hospital, but almost more than 50% of patients end up dying in hospital. So we still have a lot of legwork to do in making sure patients' voices are heard around where they do want their end of life. What's, what's the biggest misconception you've encountered, uh, Jane? The biggest misconception I've encountered? Um, palliative care and hospice. I think a lot of people have, a, 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 for many years, have had a morbid fear of the word hospice and the morbid fear of the word palliative. And um, our goal is really to to demystify those words and explain them very clearly, much like Ingrid has done, and uh, showing them that it's really a type of care, a level of care, and people what the hospice looks like. I often give tours, and they, they already have an idea that it's some dark, dreary place, and when they walk in, I love the look on their face when they see how beautiful it is. Some, someone is attentive to, to making the place look as beautiful even though it's it could be a bit downing, but it's beautiful. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a it's a fourteen year old building. It's been well looked after. The design is beautiful. Lots of light, lots of warm colors. Beautiful is uh, private rooms. Um, lots of space for families to gather and and stay. So you know, it really. I we get a lot of feedback from families about hospice, and what they walked into is not what they end up receiving they, they 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 really are quite amazed at the level of care and the attentiveness of the staff they feel very supported and that and when they walked in they probably didn't feel that mm. they, that they would receive that type of care okay well, how, how would you answer those questions you know palliative care has been deemed you know end of life care which means patients and families feel that it is right at the end of life and it is so not at right at the end of life as Ingrid mentioned, you know, quality of life is so important, especially at the time when you've been diagnosed with a serious life-limiting illness. What becomes important at that point is not just your physical symptoms, but there's so much more to it. There's psychological symptoms. There's that emotional care that needs to happen and the spiritual care. So all of those things can now be addressed and met as, as their needs arise. And, and, and this holistic approach to, to patient care becomes so important for quality, of life for the time that they have. It doesn't matter how much. The prognosis is not as important as it is to live well for the time that you have. And that is what we are trying to address. I remember my father, Bernie Lane, was uh, in the Royal Columbian Hospital. Uh, and the nurses, the nurse that was in charge of that ward, uh, she actually knew that uh, when she phoned, she said, your father is dying and you need to get here right now. How would they know that? 
Yeah, there's constellation of symptoms that we see when people are close to the end of their life. And so there's changes in people's level of consciousness and the way that they can communicate with us. There's changes in terms of their eating and drinking and their sleepiness. And then there's other physical changes such as their heart rate, the ability to palpate pulses, the way that the blood flows through their body, the color of their skin. So there's various different things that we see when people are getting closer to the end of the life, their life. And so we can see things that are in the last couple months too. We have ways to try and predict the last kind of six to eight hours of somebody's life. Now, none of us have a crystal ball by any means, and we're all very clear with that, is that we are using the signs and symptoms that we can see to try and help predict that. And so when somebody is, is getting that close to the end of the life that we're, we're calling their family in, we hope we have been involved much sooner than that. Because I think that is one of the biggest, biggest misperception, is that our role is that last 72 hours of life. And really, we can bring so many different skills for family, for friends, and for the patient if we get involved very early. So, for example, if somebody is diagnosed with a cancer that we know does not have a good prognosis, so something like a glioblastoma, which is a type of cancer of the brain, if we get involved early, we get to know that patient, we get to know what's important to them. And we can really help guide them through their entire journey, whether it involves oncological or cancer treatments or not. Wow. Um, very interesting. Akila, what, what is your experience in this? Can you repeat the question again? Yeah. Um, what, explain what you, what you do. That, would, that perhaps would be better. What What's I your responsibility at the hospital? My responsibility at the hospital, I've been a palliative care patient for over 20 years, I want to say. Um, I was a general practitioner initially, and I was playing two roles. But in the last two years, I've switched to purely working in the hospital and in the community for palliative care patients and their families. What we do in palliative care in the hospital is we attend to the acute needs of a patient who may need, who comes in with acute symptoms uh, that need that need addressing, for example, if they needed a blood transfusion, if they had an infection, those would be met in the acute setting in the hospital. In the community, ongoing care that Ingrid mentioned to keep them well, to deal with their pain, symptoms that can be managed in the community. So we address that as well. And I also work in the hospice. So the, the, the way the program is, is that we work in continuum with where the patient is and provide the best care for where their needs are being met. For example, if they're uh, their symptoms can be managed in the community. We, I will address that. I will be responsive to their, their needs in the community. When I'm on call for the hospital, I'll deal with the acute patient needs in the hospital. And then the hospice care, which is which can be respite care or it could be end-of-life care. So the hospice, again, we also rotate through the hospice and I rotate through the hospice to also look after patients in hospice for both, for respite as well as end-of-life care. And then last but not least, what I do do is I also am the director for the Everyday Counts a Day program that addresses the needs that Ingrid talked about, the early diagnosis of palliative care. When cure is no longer possible, but imagine that if you, were, if you walked into a doctor's office and were given, you walked in, you had no idea, and then when you walked out, your life had changed. Suddenly you had been told or given 
information that made you realize that life, that cure is no longer possible. What are your needs immediately after that? You may have a GP that's supportive. You may have a family that's really supportive. You may have information that you can get at fingertips, or you may not have any of those things available to you. So where do you go once you are faced with this diagnosis or this information that you've just received? Everyday counts in palliative care. We are, what we're trying to do is to have this place where you can come and get information, you can get education, you can get supports, and you can also get wellness. And that is what I do is I run that program called the EDC, which is a day program, addressing all of those needs early on so that we can provide the quality to the patients and their families for the time that they have. How do patients get admitted to the hospice? To the hospice? Uh, several ways. So they can be admitted to the hospice through community. So we have community nursing and nurse practitioners who are in the community looking after these palliative patients. And if if their symptoms are not managed in the community, then they are then they we then we can we, then they're brought to the hospice with a phone call to our service, and we will admit them to hospice directly from community. In the hospital, there are acute patients that could be changing and declining, or their condition is changing such that that they no longer require acute care, but they require more care that is more focused on comfort, or they're pivoted from acute care to pivoted to comfort care because of, of, of what they're facing and the illnesses are, are, are exhibiting changes such that, you know, that they cannot be, that treatments are now focused on comfort. If that happens, then, then patients can be admitted from, to hospice directly from the hospital. That's the, the second place. Ingrid, is there any other places where we can admit patients? Yeah, and so I think that, you know, just talking a little bit about the structure of the way we have hospice on the North Shore is our hospice beds are split into two different categories. So one category is called respite care. And so respite care is for patients who are not directly at their end of life, but have symptom management needs that cannot be met elsewhere. So oftentimes these patients come from the community, they'll come and we'll get some better symptom control and then they'll go home. So that's, that's kind of a respite option. The other 10 beds of our hospice are directly for end of life. And like Anise was saying, those patients can come from community, those patients can come from the hospital, um, sometimes from other jurisdictions as well. And so those patients are coming to North Shore Hospice for end of life care. So they are closer to the end of their life and they have symptom management needs that cannot be met elsewhere. So those needs can be met at home or they could not be met in a more like a long-term care setting. And so it is a very specialized place in terms of it's, it's special because of where it is and the outlook and the, the light and the gardens and just the general vibe, but it also provides a very special level of, of care. And so for, for some patients, hospice isn't appropriate because their care needs can be say met in their long-term care facility or they can be met at home and they want to stay at home. And so it is, it is a very special place that provides a very high level of care with round the clock nurses and homes, or not home support workers, but uh, personal support workers. There are social workers there, there's music therapy there. So it, it is a very special place. Jane, what's your experience in this? 
for hospice patients, um, what I see is they get not just the nurses and the doctors, they, they, they get, as Ingrid said, the volunteers, um, music therapists and social workers. They're, it's a multidisciplinary team that, that come to, to support patients and family. The family are as important as the patient in many ways because they've journeyed with that patient for many months to years. Um, I, I often can almost physically see the weight coming off family members' shoulders as they walk in the door. They realize that they don't have to be the caregiver anymore. The nurses look after that. The doctors take care of that. They can gather and just be a family. And that's how we often sort of frame it when folks come for, for tours is that, you know, you don't need to worry about the care once somebody's in hospice. Um, many, many years ago, I've been with the palliative program for, oh gosh, 24 years now. And um, one of the most brilliant things they ever did was they developed a registry. So what that means is every every patient that was re referred to the North Shore Palliative Program was put into a database. And we also record their family information so that we can stay in touch with people for well over, well after, long after the patient has passed away, we have a very robust bereavement program. And using that registry is very, very helpful because it lets people know that they are no longer, things don't end when the patient passes away. There's a whole other avenue that we can offer them for support after that. So, what does dying at a hospice, um, or how does it differ, I should say? just just dying in the hospital so i think it differs in a, in a couple different ways so dying in hospital is very institutionalized there's constant beeping people in and out it's fluorescent lighting it is there's oxygen on the wall there's hospital curtains it's a very sterile environment and so while you will still get good symptom management and you'll have access to the nurses and the social workers it is very different than hospice, which is as close to home as you can get. So the hospice is single patient rooms. It's soft lighting. It's got a couch and a recliner. It is, it's a more homey environment. So while you still have 24 seven nurses, you have the support workers and you have the same cast of characters involved, it's just a more relaxed environment. And so like Jane said, people come in and their shoulders just drop because it is, it is calm, it is relaxed, it is, it's just a more serene environment for somebody's end of days. It is a place you can gather. So there's a large auditorium, people have celebrations of, we had a celebration of love recently. They didn't want to call it a celebration of life because he was still alive and wanted to be a part of it. So they called it a celebration of love. Mm. And there's just space to gather and to ask questions and the just the whole milieu of it is is so different than being in a hospital. And I I, I assume these hospitals uh, hospice are open 20, 24 hours a day. Yes. yes so visitation is very accessible. Anise, go ahead. Yes, yes, they're very available and visitation is 24 hours a day. And not only that, there's a couch in the room where the patient's family members can stay the night if they want to. Added mm. to that, they have a chef that provides meals for the patients. 
And if the family would like meals, they could also be um, they could also have meals made for them at a very nominal cost. Mm. So it really is a home away from the home. And it also allows that patients, family members to just be their loved ones as opposed to that providing that care. It, it is so important to to really emphasize on that because truly they feel like they've come to a place where they can just be the loved one, be looked after, and also they can just be with that uh, and make memories with their uh, with their patient and the, the and the rest of the family can also gather. So they're not making meals and they're not sort of distracted with you know symptom management and not distracted with all this other stuff that they need to do to take care of their loved one. Here they're just basically they can gather together, they can have their own families also visit, and like Ingrid said, you know. They can have celebrations as well, whether it's for a Sunday Super Bowl or even whether it's a celebration of love or life but they, that they can bring their own families to do that. We have a beautiful garden where the patients can also be wheeled out in their chairs or even in their bed. And all of that is doable in the hospice setting. I, I know that uh, most doctors are unable to make house calls. Um, and so... Um, how do they handle it? Ingrid. Yes. So, you know, we we do not take over the role of a patient's GP. Their, their family physician is still a really important piece of the puzzle. We help provide care alongside them. And so as a team, uh, we do have the ability to do house calls. The majority of the home visits are done by our palliative nurse practitioners. And we are all in constant communication with each other. We're a really big team-based approach. And so we do have the ability to go to people's homes and see them there and help provide symptom management for them there as well. Our biggest goal is to try and keep people out of the hospital because there is no way that being in hospital really enhances your quality of life. And so... We are, we are big at trying to bring care to people to try and keep them out of there. So how do people live at home with a, a life-limiting disease? And, and not I, I can speak a little to that yes, um, in that um, we, we, have a, we have an amazing community team. Our community nurses are very knowledgeable in palliative care. Many of them were former palliative nurses on, at Lionsgate and the hospice, but but there's an amazing team out there, and um, we we have a very great communication lines between the community. Uh, families often I get a lot of calls from family members for folks that maybe have not been referred yet, and they're looking for resources, and that's often a great way to to introduce palliative care to people and get. The, the patient referred to get them in the system to get everybody lined up so they know what's available and how they how they can access uh, support the community nurses I often refer to them as the 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 go-to person because they they see the patient in the home and then if uh, they feel the the patient would benefit from a, a dietitian or the social worker or respiratory or a wound care clinician they they basically can can order all those services for the patient from the home and uh, that that really helps. I think we do an amazing job at keeping people at home for as long as they possibly can be. And then I often see hospice being offered as a plan B. Uh, if the patient said, I'd really like to die at home with my family around and my dog on my bed. And um, we always say, that's great. We will do our utmost to make sure that happens. 
but let's just have a plan B just in case. So hospice is often introduced as that plan B in case things don't work out at home as, as well as they had hoped. Is there one or two misconceptions about uh, being admitted to a hospice? I think one of the big misconceptions about being admitted to hospice or even palliative care in general is that everything's gonna stop. All your meds are gonna stop. Nobody's gonna come see you anymore. You're going to be placed in a corner and, and that's kind of it. I think that the, the, the misconception that being part of a palliative care program is not active management. And we are, we do a lot of active management. We are constantly taking histories and doing physical exams and that sort of thing. But again, the approach is a little bit different in that we're not looking at cure, we're looking at that symptom management. And so I think that is one of the biggest misconceptions that you're just gonna come into hospice and nobody's gonna see you and you're just gonna be there. Mm. And, you know, the other misconception is that we think that it's just physical symptoms that we need to deal with. You know, it's just the pain and the, the constipation, but it's so much more than that. The the, the suffering, the, the emotional distress, the spiritual uh, distress, if there is uh, a spiritual um, belief system in place, um, all of those things are addressed. And, you know, when you start to address the patient as a whole person, I think that we start to realize how much, how much you can take away from that and how much it enhances the quality because dying is happening to all of us regardless. And so we know the day we are born that one day we are going to die, but how we're going to die or what's going to happen is something that we don't really want to address until we're almost faced with it. And then when we're faced with it, what is important then? And, and to shed light on that for the patient and their family, I think it brings so much more. And I think once we sort of start to speak to it, I think we realize that patients also start to feel a bit more comfortable. But in the beginning, there is the misconception that palliative care means that you're going to die and, you know, it's going to be horrible. And what do you see about palliative care? You usually see people on TV, you know, who are dying with, you know, distress. And so patients' conception of what dying is, is also something that needs to be, that we need to be work with to sort of say, no, it's not like that. It just simply is not. You will not die in distress and uh, un with uncontrolled symptoms. Rather, it's much more like a journey as you walk through. And it is at the end of life is something that is going to happen to each one of us. And so if we can kind of allow to walk with that patient and family and in their journey and keep them comfortable until they pass, I think is what we're trying to kind of make sure that every one of us, you know, provides that level of care to that patient and family so that it is, you know, the grief is it is peaceful. And patients and family members do feel when they leave this place and Jane will speak to what happens for the grief afterwards for the patients, family members, the loved ones that are left behind. I think she will speak to that, how mm -hmm. we can bring that whole continuum in hospice care uh, to, to support this, this process that we all will face. I'd like the three of you to answer this question individually, but start with you, Jane. What drew you ladies to this profession? Um, I had been working in Lionsgate Hospital for 10 years, and I kind of had a five-year plan, move around, try new departments, different roles that, that were appropriate for me, and an opportunity came to work in palliative care up on 7 West, which is the palliative unit at Lionsgate Hospital, 
And the minute I walked in, I felt like a member of the team. They, they never re referred to me as a secretary, that I was a valued team member. I've always felt like that with, with the palliative program. And it's amazing how much um, collaboration is done when you have that mutual respect. And uh, I, I, did, I did a little course in the hospital that they offer staff about dealing with death and dying. And the one takeaway I got from that little workshop was you don't need to be upset about when people pass away because everybody's story is theirs. It's not yours. You don't take it home. And the best thing you can do for somebody who's going to be dying in a few days and you're, you may be talking with them, you may be talking to the family, the best thing you can do is listen and just hear them hear them say their words because they're going through a, a life-changing experience and you are there to witness that. So um, I've learned a whole lot about death and dying and I'm certainly not afraid of it anymore, that's for sure. Dr. Mavi, how would you answer that question? So I, like Dr. Laka, started as a family doctor and I was in Calgary and I came back to North Vancouver and I was working at Lionsgate as one of the hospitalists. Um, and I ran into a niece who I had worked with when I was in medical school. So she had been my mentor in medical school. And she was like, you've got to come try this. Just come follow me around for a couple of days. Just come, come and do a locum, come follow me around. And so I did a locum for her. And then I did a locum for Dr. Peter Edmonds, who's our senior medical director at Lionsgate and was the previous medical director for the palliative care team. And I was hooked. It was an approach to care that really resonated with me. I'm big on quality of life before I even got into palliative care. And so that felt like a really good fit. I think that there is a lot of really interesting acute medicine in palliative care as well. And so I feel like I got to, to practice everything that was really intriguing to me about medicine already. So it just kind of wrapped everything up in, in one kind of specialty. And Dr. Laka, how would you answer that question? So when I was a medical student in the UK, palliative care was something that was very comfortable and very kind of, it was cornerstone. Hospices were in, in villages and in, in, in communities everywhere. And when I came here, um, palliative care was something that my patients did not even know what that meant. Um, I was always interested in helping patients because one of the things that I recognized that is when you're born, you have your pa parents who are your advocates. 99% of the time, they're your advocates when your voice is so small. But when you're dying, it's quite a different matter. Sometimes you have your family, sometimes you have your friends, sometimes you have people who will speak for you and be your advocates. But many a time, there isn't that advocacy, there isn't that person. So what is it that that, that that patient needs at that time? And I really, it really resonated with me. And it was something that I felt very empathetic and very strongly about providing that voice for that patient and their, meet their needs the way they saw it. So when I first came here, um, there was no palliative care framework in the community. I helped patients die. I was, a uh, as Ingrid mentioned, I was a GP. I helped patients die in the home. It was very difficult. But there were a few patients who were very, very, felt very strongly that they wanted to die in the home. Today, this is something that we do very, very naturally, and we want patients to die at home. But in those days, most patients died in the hospital. So for mm -hmm. me, it was very important to do this work 
to then bring this. And, and, and as time went on, I became more and more involved in palliative care on different fronts to be able to do what I wanted to do, which is to allow the patient's voice and to be able to die with dignity in the place that they chose and the way they chose. So that's why I'm here. Tell me, um, this is kind of offbeat a little bit. How, how did you ladies get drawn into this? And let's start with you, Jane. What, what caused you to, to do this? I was just looking for a change. Um, and I had been working in busy outpatient areas in the hospital. And, you know, you, 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 it, every day seemed to be the same. And I really wanted to, I'd never had an opportunity to work on a nursing floor before. And where, where I was located, when I did accept the job and where I was located, I, was, I had a prime seat for, for the palliative journey for a lot of people. And I, I got to witness how the, the nurses and doctors interacted and the, the, the discussions that took place because everything, it was a whole different conversation compared to working in a, a busy outpatient clinic where everybody's looking for answers and cures. When you get to palliative, you already know basically what's going to happen. We just want to make that journey, uh, you know, extremely special. You know, the but the, most of the the outcomes are inevitable. So the the whole pace of the place really attracted me because it it was and and I was amazed at how joyful it could be as well. I thought I'd be going home crying at the dinner table every night, and I actually we I've, I don't think I've laughed as much as I do with the staff in palliative and hospice because we really do learn to appreciate life. And everybody that we work with, the, the patients and families are very grateful for, for being able to be in, in such a beautiful place. And uh, it's very heartwarming. We've gone way, way over a half hour. And uh, <laughs> I'm fascinated by not only your experience, but your knowledge and how you express yourself. And they, they comes, there comes across on the screen here, uh, there's a passion. Um, this is very important to you, what you do. And on behalf of all the people you see and their, their, their friends and, and uh, family, thank you so much uh, for devoting this part of your life to palliative care, certainly in the hospital in, uh, in, in North Vancouver. So thank you so much, ladies. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review.